Last week, if you remember, we talked about Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and we're going to continue that tonight um, because it serves as kind of the overarching theme of it. And if we, you read that, it says, You also were included in Christ when you heard through the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right? And so we talked about last week, how do you become saved? Well, what's involved in the process of salvation? And we talked about three things, that it is in him, that it is Christ, that he is the only way, and that it is in him that you are saved, that it comes from listening to the message. Remember, we spent some time talking about the difference between hearing and listening, the difference between hearing something and listening to someone, and then that there must be belief. Okay, um, And so that's where we were last week. Okay, that's how it happens. Now the question then becomes, well, how do you know you are? And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, gives us a test. And it's one of those that is simple yet complex. It's one of those that is simple to say, but it's harder to figure out. And it's this simple thing that says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. If people say, well, how do you know you're saved? The simple answer is, you show evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what this means. Now, when it says seal there, when I say, when you, when you hear sealed today, you're, it's sealed. What do you think about Secure, fastened, so you think of sealing an envelope, okay? That's not exactly what is meant here, okay? For us, that's what it is. You, you seal an envelope or you seal a Ziploc bag, okay? Now, people sometimes will say, see, we're sealed with the Spirit. That means that we've been locked away. And so they use this for the assurance of the eternal security of believers. Well, I believe in the eternal security of believers. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But that really comes later in in verse 14 instead of here. The point here is when it says seal, it's really going to a tradition in their day. In their day, they didn't have notary publics. All right? They didn't have um, people that tested signatures. They didn't, a lot of them didn't really have signatures. And so what would happen is they would, um, when they sold something, let's let's say the Johnsons. Um, is today a birthday, by the way? Yesterday, my face. I didn't look at my Facebook till today. Miss Teresa had a birthday yesterday, so let's say Cliff decides for her birthday he's going to buy her a summer home in Venice. All right. Let's, he's 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 really thought she's had a good, huh? I already have it. All right. So he's going to get a summer home in Venice for, okay? And so he goes out and he's going to purchase that. Well, today, how would he purchase that? He'd go to the bank. He'd get forms. Um, I still remember the first time I ever sat down and we bought a house, our first house, and the mound of forms they placed in front of us and sign here and sign there and, you know, it would have taken you six years to read all the material. They just tell you to sign, and you sign, and you, you get all that done. Now, 
Well, in the ancient days, if Cliff's going to go buy a birthday present for Miss Teresa, and he, she's, he's going to get him a home in Venice, he's going to go to the person that owns it, he's going to exchange it, and then they're going to give him a deed. It's going to say, this is your property. And to seal the deal. You ever heard that phrase? To seal the deal, they're going to pour hot wax in the corner. And they're going to get it to where it's really moldable, almost like Play-Doh. But it'll be warm. And Cliff's going to have a ring that is his family seal. And when that document is where that wax needs to be, he's going to press that ring into the seal. And then when it hardens, it shows ownership belongs to him. What it says here, now, now there were times when documents were sealed or contracts were sealed or things were sealed in that way, in the way we think about sealing up an envelope, but it was always sealed with that insignia of ownership. So what the scripture says here is, when we were saved, when Christ came into our lives, what happened is that Christ put his stamp on us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He declared ownership over us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So there's the simple answer. You show evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what does that look like? Well, there are a couple of things you can do. You could look at the fruit of the Spirit, if you will, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can look at that and say, okay, is my life showing more and more evidence of the fruit of the Spirit being a part of my life? Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more joyful? Am I on, now that doesn't mean you don't get mad every now and then, but as a general rule, am I more gentle? Am I more self-controlled? Is it that really is the issue there is not just your particular actions, it's whether you're turning your life over more and more to the will of God. You could talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Am I, am I being gifted by the Spirit? Am I using the gifts? That would be evidence. Um, you could talk about a conviction of sin, that you don't like to sin as much anymore. That's part of the Holy Spirit work. Or that He guides you into truth. Or that He leads us. Or that it comforts us. But I want to give you two or three other tests that can show you whether or not the Holy Spirit is a part of your life. And the first one is a test of belief. Are your beliefs and thoughts being continually guided into the things that God's Word teaches? And are you hungering for that? Are you intellectually thinking of weighing, working through what the Bible teaches and what God wants? Or are you just kind of letting whatever happens, happens? Um, I think that there's, in Christianity in recent times, there's been kind of a move away from deep thought into more how it feels. And it's dangerous. Uh, I was driving, we were driving the other day uh, down the highway, and a song came on the radio, and uh it's on Contemporary Christian Radio Station, and I don't. I, the guy started singing, and the chorus of the song, and if you ever listen to 94.1 or, or Way FM, you may have heard this. 
the, the chorus of the song just kind of hit me. I, I've heard the song before, but you ever had one of those songs you listen to it, but you don't, you hear it, but you don't listen to it. You don't, you don't realize the words, and then one day you're like, I didn't realize it said that, either good or bad, you know. Um, I listen now to some things I listened to in high school, and I think, why did my parents let me listen to that? I, and then I think back, well, they told me not to, but, you know, you understand it now. But um, this this particular course said it's got to be more like falling in love than having something to believe in. And the idea there is that it's got to be, understand it's got to be a relationship with the Lord. But I just turned to Susan and I said, I don't agree with that. She said, what are you talking about? I said, this song. She goes, I don't even know what it is. And so she started, I said, well, listen to it. So she listened to it, and I said, I don't, th- I, don't, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. I mean, I do think there's an emotional, relational attachment to the Lord, but that can't be put above the mental and theological understanding of who God is and what he's done. And so the first test has to be, as my belief system or what I think, coming more and more in line with what Scripture is teaching. Paul talked all the time about making sure you believe what we have heard and what we have taught. John talks about what I have heard, what I have seen, what I have thought about, and goes to the kind of what I've been a part of, what I've been around, what I've taught you. Take those things and hold on to them. We're told to contend for the gospel that was given once and for all to the saints. So this idea that belief isn't important is is just wrong. It is important. And for a believer, you need to ask yourself the question, do I believe Jesus is the only way? Do I believe that Jesus was the perfect Son of God? Do I believe that my sin, my sin, is what caused Him to go to the cross? Adrian Rogers once said that that sometimes people get saved and then they think that it was some righteousness they do that keeps them that way. And we're going to talk about secure the belief in a minute. But Adrian Rogers said this, and I don't know if you knew Adrian or knew of him, but, you know, tower of a preacher, one of the best preachers of the 20th century. And Adrian said, I wouldn't take my best 15 minutes in my life and count on that for my salvation because it's not good enough. And so there has to be a belief that we need Jesus. There has to be a belief that without him we're hopeless. And it can't be at any point that you kind of move away from that. So the second test to whether or not you're a believer, because, I mean, Scripture talks about people that think they're saved and aren't, Right? I mean, at Judgment Day, you get there and they separate sheep from the goats, and there are some of the goats that say, wait a minute, we knew you. We're one of yours. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me. Never knew you. The second test is the test of obedience. We must be guided by the commandments. Obedience must be a part. Scripture says over and over again, If you say that you love me, but you don't obey my commandments, then you don't love me. If you want to show me that you love me, then do what I say. We've been talking about this life application stuff over the last few Sundays. And 
the point of all of that has been the Scripture teaches if you don't apply it, if you don't do it, if you're not obedient, then you question the relationship. Why is it important for children to be obedient to their parents? So it's beneficial for them, okay? They keep them out of trouble, hopefully. Now, everybody in this room that has children has told them they need to obey, I assume, right? So what do we base that upon? So children, the Bible says it, okay? Now, let me ask you this question. As a parent, you expect obedience, right? Right? I mean, you ask your child to do something, you expect them to do it, okay? If not, Eli would love to talk to you because at our house, we do. When we say, Eli, go pick up your room, we expect Eli to go pick up his room. Now, it's not a test of his love for us, but we do say things like this. When you don't obey, you're disrespecting us. You're undermining our authority. Now, let's take that relationship to our relationship with the Lord. Why should we obey Him? He loved us first. Anybody want to repeat your answer from the first question? The Bible says so. It's better for us. It keeps us out of trouble. leads to a longer life. Not necessarily number-wise, but quality-wise. And basically, when we disobey the Lord, we're disrespecting Him, and we're undermining the authority He has in our life. And so Jesus says, if you want to see if you're one of my children, test your obedience level. And it's not to those things you like to obey. Here's the thing with Eli. If I told him, Eli, go downstairs and play that Wii right now. You know what? He is going to run at that opportunity. But if I say, Eli, like last night, okay, we had baseball scrimmage. Eli's playing baseball this fall. We had baseball scrimmage. And basically, this is what I figured out. It's two coaches that have practices back-to-back, which means you get double the practice that you would normally get. So he comes out, and you little boys that play baseball slide everywhere. Running out to right field, you slide into right field. You're running home, you, you, you're not, you don't get the ball, you just slide. And so, you know, there's dirt flying everywhere. He, he's filthy, Okay. He did not get all of his homework done because we're in third grade now and we got lots of homework. And so on the way home, I say to Eli, Eli, when we get home, this is what you need to do. Get in the shower, put on your pajamas, eat a snack, and then we're going to read your book, finish your homework, and you're going to bed. Did you hear me? What, Daddy? Here's what we're going to do, Eli. And so I repeated it, and he just went, ugh. I said, don't uh me. I said, what do you want? I want to play. Well, he had played all afternoon. I said, this isn't about what you want to do. This is about what you need to do. And Scripture teaches that our test of whether or not, now, that doesn't mean you're perfect and you obey all the time, but it's about the direction of your heart. And it's not about feelings always. That even when you don't feel like it, when you go, ah, oh, 
is still say, I want to do what pleases the Father. Now, here's the truth. The more you grow in your relationship with him, the less uh moments you have. You just learn to make it through. I've been watching with interest the Tennessee football practices, reports coming out. And the other day they came out. They got a young team. They're very young. The other day they came out after practice and uh, their coach, they asked him, what did he think about his team? I said, we, he said, we got an immature team and they got to learn they're going to have to work hard even when they don't feel like it. They got to do what I say. That's not to say that being obedient in the Christian life is always a drudgery or upsetting. But it does mean that there ought to be evidence in your life that that's what you want to do. Here's the third test. So you have a test of belief, you have a test of obedience. Here's the third test. It's the test of fellowship. Who do you want to be around? Who do you want to be around and why do you want to be around them? There's this natural thing that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to connect with other people who are followers of Jesus Christ. You want to be around them. You want to talk with them. You want to encourage them. That when something happens in your relationship, you want to make it right. You want to make it better. There aren't, shouldn't be any ongoing, long-term relationship issues that are just keep nagging at you. You want to make it better. And even if they won't make it right, you make an attempt to make it right. There has to be this desire for that. And then there's a desire in you not just to hang around a bunch of fellow believers all the time, but to also seek out people who are not yet followers of Jesus for the purpose of leading them into a relationship with Jesus. It becomes a question of allegiance and priority. As you grow in your faith, you ought to become more and more like Christ, and you ought to become more and more devoted to Him, and you want to become more and more passionate about telling others about Him. It ought to be a gradual process of growing but it ought to be growth. I had the privilege today of visiting with um, Danny Gibson. Most, most of you all know Danny. Danny been in church here a long time. and um, Danny's in the hospital. He's going to have surgery in the next couple of days. And I visited with him. And here's the thing that I love about Danny Gibson. No matter what the situation is, I always walk away encouraged. I mean, he's laying in that bed. He's getting ready to have surgery. It's a pretty serious surgery, especially for someone that, that's his age and his health and all of that. It's not a light surgery. And I walked out of that room smiling, and he's smiling. He's just great attitude. But this is what really uh, I see in Danny. Danny, uh, most of y'all, many of y'all may not know this. Some of you may or all of you may. But Danny has been regularly going out with Bill Lars and Steve Moore and and Ben West, and some others. And they just go door to door, knocking on doors, telling people about Jesus. Danny has come to me on several occasions just saying, I want to do more to get more people to understand who Jesus is. One of the things that I said to him about being in that hospital bed, he said, I couldn't go Sunday. I hate I couldn't go with those guys Sunday. I mean, he's he was in the emergency room, so I couldn't go. He, But... He, all he's thinking about is, I want to get out there and tell people about Jesus. And he tells me this story of somebody he knew passed away without him being able to tell. 
and how that burdens him continually. And he doesn't want to have anybody he knows that he doesn't tell. That's a guy that is becoming more and more passionate about telling others. In Ephesians 1, it says that you were marked in him with a seal and that the Holy Spirit of God... We talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, speaking in tongues and when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes. This is one of those passages that says that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and it marks you, it seals you, it says, this is mine. Verse 14. Here's the next question. All right, if I know I am, how do I lose it? Or can I lose it? Verse 14. The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody out there have something other than the NIV? Have a different translation there? In verse 14, or about all of you got an IV. You got King James. What does King James say there in verse 14? It's instead of a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, what does it say? Okay. So you've got instead of instead of the deposit, you've got the earnest, okay? The pledge, okay? Any other words used? Some modern translations use down payment, okay? Here's the thing. We've talked about Cliff is buying Miss Teresa this house in Venice for her birthday. Okay? Now, Cliff, Cliff's worked hard all his life, but Cliff doesn't quite have the $2.3 million price tag that's on this house that he's bought for Miss Teresa. Okay? He's stocked away some money, but he hasn't stocked away that much. But it's still a good investment. He's thought through. He can pay it. He can make the payments. So the bank says, in order for us to let you live and have the house, we're going to need what? A down payment. What What do they used to call that? Earnest money. Right? The idea is, and if you get on the official documents, it still says earnest money. The idea is, this is your promise that you are going to pay the rest of the note on this house. I know this may shock you all, but Susan and I did not have enough money to buy our house with cash. We have not accumulated that kind of wealth. And so we gave them a down payment, and we are currently making payments every month on that house. Technically... We don't own the house, right? We don't own it yet. When will I own the house? When I pay it in full. So whether or not I own the house is dependent upon my ability to pay the note. What happens if I don't pay the note for a year? What's that? I'll be moving. That's right. There, you know there's a new trend out there because of all the upside-down houses. You know, a lot of people have bought houses and they're not worth what they owe, right? That used to be true on cars. It used to not be true on houses. It's now true on houses, all right? So you got all these people out there. There are people now just walking away from their house saying, take it. So here's the deal. A down payment is only as good 
as the ability of the person making the down payment to fulfill the obligations of the rest of the payment. Would you agree with that? Okay. So here's what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit has been given to you, and He is the earnest money. Now, I want to tell you right quick, that's pretty good earnest money. One of the members of the Trinity living in and through you is a pretty good earnest money. But He is earnest money that is guaranteeing our inheritance. What it's saying is, you have not been completely redeemed yet. Your sins have been wiped away, but you have not been made what you will be. But it's coming. And the reason we can depend on that is because of the one who is paying the bill. God Almighty Himself. And so you have this thing in question of whether or not we can lose our salvation. And I think Ephesians chapter 1, even in a short phrase... The promised Holy Spirit, deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. I think you, you have enough there to make a case for it, but fortunately there are other places. And here's what I want to do. Now, I want to tell you why I believe in the eternal security of a believer, but I want to answer two objections before we do that. First of all, we have to realize that membership does not equal relationship. Just because people's names are on a church roll doesn't mean they're in the book of life in heaven. And one of the things, here's where you get the... When people come to me with, I don't believe in the eternal security of a believer, and I say, why? It almost always starts with, well, I knew a guy I mean, I knew a guy who I grew up with him, and he walked down the aisle, and he got baptized. But now, he doesn't want anything to do with the church and says that God's not real. Well, what does it say about the Bible? I don't know, but I know a guy. Who? Now, I'm not saying there aren't places in Scripture that are difficult for us to navigate. There are some places in Hebrews that are difficult. But most of the common objections you hear are experiential, anecdotal. Well, I've just seen too many people. I had a friend in in high school who started coming to our youth group, and he was from a different denominational background. And he and I got into some real discussions because he felt called to the ministry, um, and he was working through some of that. And we got into an in-depth discussion about And this is one of those times I was 16 years old. And it, it was just one of those times when God gave me clarity on a couple of issue points that I still don't know. I, I didn't. I hadn't studied this. I hadn't been to seminary. I hadn't read. I didn't know what a systematic theology book looked like. And I just said to him, "Okay, if you say there's somebody that's walked away from the faith, how do you know they were in the faith? What what evidence is there? I mean, you have the parable of the sower too, where sometimes things look good at the beginning, but they haven't made a real commitment. They've just kind of been there." We talked about a friend of ours who was one of was the most popular guy in his class, in our class. He was, you know, he was the jock and the handsome and popular and uh, always had a pretty girl that he was dating and 
guys always were wanting to hear what he had to say. And he went on a youth church trip with us when we were in ninth grade and came out and just, oh, I'm, this is it. I believe in Jesus. And it lasted for about four weeks. And he just went back to doing all the stuff he'd done before. And he said, well, what do you think about him? He was saved. I said, well, I'm not going to question somebody's salvation. I, I, as far as I, I'm not going to say what happened in that experience. I said, but the test of his faith will be the long-term faithfulness to Christ. I'm not saying that the experiences aren't real in the moment. I'm just saying the evidence comes in a long-term relationship with Christ. Um, I have children come to me and ask me sometimes, well, how do I know if I've been saved? Or they'll say, can you tell me I've been saved? And there's some preachers who say, absolutely, you prayed the prayer. And what I say to them is, I can't tell you that. I said, to be honest with you, the only person that knows that right now is, is between you and God. I said, these are the things that will show me that you have believed in Jesus. And it's a long-term walk, not a momentary decision. So membership doesn't equal relationship, and religious does not equal righteous. When we get to heaven, I'm convinced that every church will have people that they are shocked are not there. Well, but you remember Mr. So-and-so and all the work he did at that church. You remember Miss So-and-so, all those Sunday school classes she taught? Just because you're doing the work doesn't mean that you've had a relationship with the Lord. There are some religious people that think their religion is going to save them. And that's not what does it. There are going to be some people when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked or there. Wow! I never would have thought. We'd have some of those backhanded compliments when we get to heaven. Right. I did not expect to see you here. I'm glad you're here. Well, that is shocking. Right? I mean, some of those. So we have to, first of all, especially in the southeastern United States, take out our understanding of what we mean by have you been saved or have you accepted the Lord or are you a follower of Jesus? That doesn't mean are you a church member. That doesn't mean did you walk an aisle when you were 13 years old and from the time you were 15 you have shown zero evidence of caring about the gospel or about Jesus Christ, or about fellow believers. I'm not saying that, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that person got saved at 13 and then something happened at 15 and they lost it. What I'm saying is you have to question the decision at 13 if there's been no evidence since then. And we, as believers, sometimes say, well, that's not our position to judge. And we're right. It's not our position, and God's not going to let us do it. That judgment, in its official term, means that we decide who goes to heaven and who doesn't. God's not going to give us that opportunity. But Scripture does teach that we ought to be observant of people and that we ought to be continually reminding those that have walked away or that we question whether or not they have made a significant decision, a real decision for Christ. We need to constantly encourage them towards that. So why do I believe then if it's a real decision, if it's a real moment, if it is a belief in Jesus that it will never be taken away? The first thing is 
is because eternal security rests on the promise of God, not on anything we do. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, this is Romans 8, by the way, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation. So he says death or life, that can't separate you. Angels or demons, they can't separate you. Present or future can't separate you. Powers, height, depth, and just in case I forgot it, anything else in all of creation. I think I covered it there. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we focus, when we talk about security of the believer, we focus on what man is able to do to break away from God. What the focus really ought to be is that God is the one that initiated, sustains, and will complete our salvation. And it is His promise that makes it assured. Secondly, eternal security rests on God's purpose. It's not just on the promise, but on the purpose. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until you mess up really badly. Is that what it says? Will mess up until you commit one too many sins. What does it say? Will carry it until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began it will finish it. He who put the down payment down is going to pay the note in full. It's him doing it, not us. Listen, Adrian Rogers said he wouldn't give his best 15 minutes before God and say, show that this is good enough for me to get into heaven. If our salvation did not depend on us in the beginning, then why do we think keeping it does? Eternal security rests on the Savior's provision. Hebrews 10.14 said this, Because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Think about what He says there. The tenses of those verbs are important. Therefore, by one sacrifice in the past, Christ has made perfect forever those who are still in the process of being made holy. What He says basically is, Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has made Joan Rush perfect forever, even though she is not yet who he desires for her to be. He has made Alan Searcy perfect forever, even though he is far from where he wants him to be. Amen? Think think about this. I I mean, I know that we hear this stuff all the time, and sometimes as preachers, we're like, this ought to blow our minds, and... You go, it really, okay, Lyle, well, we get it. It's a big deal. He has made us perfect forever. No question. Even though it admits that we're not there yet. Perfect forever. Those who are still in the process of being made holy. Romans 4, 8 says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never 
against him. So it rests on Christ's provision. It, it rests on the Spirit's protection. It's what we just read about. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says this, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance idea that comes over from Ephesians is this. Peter says it's an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It'll never go away. I uh, mentioned Pawn Stars last week or the week before. Another another show that, that I occasionally will stop upon when there's nothing, which is a lot of time, there's nothing else decent on, is Antiques Roadshow. Now, I know I look like the typical Antiques Roadshow viewer. But here's what you realize. Even that stuff they keep in the best possible way deteriorates. They had somebody on there the other day, and Susan and I were watching it, and they brought in this chest made in the seven. It was made in Philadelphia in the 1770s. And I can't remember what it was worth, but I said, if you would have had it in better condition, they had replaced the, the feet on it. They had done some other stuff, and... If you had an original condition, it'd be worth like 150000 But it's not. It's worth $4. No, that's not what they said. You know, I mean, things deteriorate. And what it says is the inheritance we have in Christ, get this, it doesn't just not spoil. The idea is that it never fades in any way. We don't tarnish it. It only grows better. And here's the last thing, and this is the most important thing when it comes to eternal security. Eternal security rests on the power of God. John 10 says this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. As I think about that verse, I mentioned Eli's scrimmage last night. and I was unfortunately reminded of the power of a parent's voice. Eli, who this is first year to play, and he is not what you would call fundamentally sound. And he doesn't know what to do when he gets the ball. He doesn't... You know, we're having to, this is how you run. This is where you run to. You listen to your coaches. When you get the ball, you know, I mean, baseball is one of those sports that, you know, there's a runner on first and third, and the ball's hit to you at shortstop. What do you do with the I mean, it's a complicated sport for an eight-year-old that's never played it before. So last night in the last inning, they say, Eli, go to shortstop. He's, by the way, Eli's left-handed. You know, there's a reason left-handers don't play shortstop. It's an awkward position. But, you know, it's a little league. It's, it's scrimmage. So he gets out there. And lo and behold, first ball they hit, right to Eli. And he picks, he, amazing, scoots over, picks it up right in his glove. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I've got, you know, he's going to make us millions of dollars playing baseball. Let's get this boy in some tutoring, all right? And he picks it up, and then he just looks. And coaches start saying, Throw it to first, throw it to first, throw it to first. And he's still just kind of confused. And I'm on the outside of the fence, and the dad and me, 
wants to encourage my son. And so I yell out, just throw the ball. I was encouraging. Taking my sermon to heart from Sunday, right? And he's there looking all around the field. And as soon as those words come out of my mouth, his eyes go straight to me. There was a cacophony of noise. I've just been looking for a reason to use the word cacophony, by the way. Everywhere. And yet, the child knew my voice. What Scripture says is, once you become a follower of Jesus, a child of the King, a sheep, you know His voice. And then it says this. No one. It says that God is greater than all. If you ask us, absolutely, God's greater than all of us. Absolutely. There's nobody greater than God. And he says, if that's true, then who's going to come to God and snatch these that he has chosen and taken for his own, that have accepted his free gift, who's going to take them away from him? Let me just tell you, as a dad, I would do whatever it took to protect my kids. I got a call today at 3 o'clock. Susan's got a flat tire in Hendersonville. I got Bible study at 4. So my first thing is not thinking, well, I'm going to have to find somebody to go out there and get that tire fixed and take care of them because I got Bible study at 4. My first thought is, I got to get out there. So I run and find Alan and tell him, you got 30 minutes to prepare a message for 4 o'clock. Yeah, I gave him plenty of notice. The moral of that story is Alan always be ready with something, and he was. Did a great job. And I'm out there in the heat changing a tire because I'm doing that for my family. If somebody came into my house, I would do whatever it took to protect my family. But here's the thing. I'm limited. I'm more limited than I want to be, but I'm limited. We have a father who has unlimited power. And he says he'll do whatever it takes to protect his children. Nobody's going to take us out of his hand. So the question is not, can someone do something so bad that they lose their salvation? The question is, what person is powerful enough to overcome the power of the cross in their own behavior? Most of the times, the questions that people ask are not really, can someone lose their salvation? The question is, have they ever been saved? I think the Bible teaches that once you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in Him, that position never changes. There is nobody in Scripture that gets saved twice. Nobody. That doesn't mean they don't mess up and they get second chances, but there's nobody in Scripture saved twice. And I don't think that can happen today either. And I don't think you can lose it. And I think the Bible's pretty clear on that. 